For most of her adult life, author Anne Rice, as she described it, was a pessimistic atheist. She became famous as the author of a widely read series of novels about vampires, two of which were made into a movie, an uh, interview with a vampire, right? In 1998, however, after nearly 40 years of denying God, Rice returned to the church of her youth. Eventually, she announced that from then on, she would write only for God. She has since produced two novels about Jesus. In 2008, she published her autobiography entitled Called Out of Darkness, A Spiritual Confession, in which she detailed her journey back to Christ and her decision to become a Christian. In July 2010, however, Rice announced on her Facebook page that she has quit being a Christian. In her fuller explanation, she said she isn't leaving Christ, that her faith in Him remains central to my life. What she's abandoning is the church which she has come to see as a, quote, quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group, end quote. I don't necessarily agree with uh, Anne Rice's evaluation of the church, but I will admit this, don't always get along. Now, church people usually get along, but don't always get along. And there are a number of reasons for that. For instance, there could be open and unrepentant sin in the church. And this was the, the situation in the Corinthian church. They were so divided because there was so much sin in that church. Sometimes uh, Christians have friction over simple biblical methodology. For instance, we read this in Acts 15, 39. Paul and Barnabas had such a sharp disagreement, they parted company. Now, they were arguing on whether or not to take John Mark on the second missionary journey. So just a difference of opinion, no real uh, sin involved there, but it did cause friction. And sometimes there's personality conflicts. I think this was the case in Philippians chapter 4. Paul writes, I want Euodia and Syntyche to agree with each other and get along. That just looks like it was simple personality conflicts. I, I, I will tell you that I have offended people in all these ways and more. I had a lady, an elderly lady, say to me after church one Sunday, she said, Steve, uh, i got to tell you, I don't agree with your theology. I don't agree with your methodology. Your personality leaves much to be desired. I'm gonna, I think I'm going to leave the church and never come back. I said, Mom, if you'll just be patient, a little more, I can change. So uh, we don't want to end up like Anne Rice, you know, where we love Jesus, but we hate the church. Of course, the, the Bible says that Jesus is the head of the church, and the church is the body of Christ. So if you try to separate those two, there's going to be some pain involved. And we're in the sermon series entitled, Obey Everything. We're looking at the commands of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew so that we can obey them. And the command that we're looking at today in Matthew chapter 18 has to do with confrontation and reconciliation. So we're just going to say three things this morning about biblical confrontation. Number one, confront infrequently. Confront infrequently. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If another believer sins against you, we'll just stop right there. You notice I capitalized if. If. I just put that in because how often does another believer sin against you? I, I just don't think it happens that often. And a lot of stuff, we just need to get over and let it go. It's small. You know, whether we use White Cloud or Charmin in the church restrooms, now, that's not something that we need to go to war over. Solomon writes in Proverbs 19.11, a wise man restrains his anger and overlooks insults. This is to his credit. So a lot of, just let stuff go. And in general, I think we do. And even some of the big stuff. Even sometimes the big stuff, we can let it go. Yeah, speaking of that Corinthian church, they were so divided in that church, they were taking each other to court and suing each other. And when Paul heard about that, he was mortified. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, the very fact that you have lawsuits uh, among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wrong? 
Why not rather be cheated? So apparently God expects us to be willing to go a long way to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of the peace in church and overlook little stuff and even sometimes overlook the big stuff. And that should come natural to us because we're Christians. We know this is God's attitude toward us. He overlooks a lot. And we're not talking just indiscretions. We're talking about willful, determined sins against God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Paul says, Be kind to each other and tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. And there are a lot of stuff that God just overlooks in our lives. We say, yeah, but Steve, I, conf- I always confess my sin. Really? I mean, I hope we do have a time of confession in our lives, hopefully every day, but is there not? Did we confess everything we did last month? Are there some sins that, against God that maybe we forgot? And we're just hoping that we're living under the umbrella of God's grace, which we are, and He'll forgive and He'll overlook. Sure, we're hoping that. We're trusting in that. And God seems to want us to have the same attitude toward each other. Just be patient with each other. So what we're talking about today, while it's important, it's rather infrequent. Most stuff we can let go, but not always. So if somebody does sin against us, there's, there's some division there in our relationship Then we come to the next step. Not only do we confront infrequently, but we confront in person. We confront in person. All all this is verse 15 today, Matthew 18, 15. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. I could have said in private too. That works as well. In fact, if I was rewriting that that second point, it would be in person, in private. In person, in private. And by the way, this this is for the church but these, Jesus is brilliant, and these principles work in other environments, works in business, and jobs, in families, all kinds of relationships. This is the step that is most usually overlooked when we have an issue with something, is to go to them in person and in private. I mean, if, we would, if we'd simply practice this, the rest of what Jesus talks about in the subsequent verses are moot. They're they're superfluous because usually in person and private is going to take care. The, the situation is going to be resolved 99% of the time. Until I've gone to you in person and in private with whatever the issue is, I don't need to talk to anybody else about it. Right? I don't need to talk to the minister. I don't need to talk to an elder. I don't need to talk to my life group. I don't need to put it on the prayer list. I don't need to post it up on Facebook. I don't need to tell the 6 o'clock news. I don't need to tell anyone. And we need to hold each other accountable. For Matthew 18, make sure there's no gossip or slander in the church. If somebody comes to you, somebody comes to me, and they want to talk about some issue they're having with another person, we don't hold them accountable. Don't, don't let anybody, we can't let people treat us like a garbage dump. We're, they come and dump our garbage, you know, boop, boop, boop. They're backing out, they're going to dump their garbage. But we don't have to let people do that. And it was flip this around. Not only are we responsible to go to someone else, but to make sure... Other people are doing what they are supposed to do. So let's just say somebody comes to you, you be Alfred or Alfredo this morning, okay? Somebody comes to you and says, Alfred, can you believe what Steve did? What are you talking about? What did Steve do? He switched out the white cloud for the Charmin in the church restrooms. And he knows I'm allergic to Charmin. I think he did that on purpose. All right, how are you going to respond? Really? I can't believe that. Probably did do that on purpose. And I'll tell you something else. He's talking about his grandkids too much in the sermon. He's always talking about those grandkids. I'm sick of hearing about those grandkids. You know, you can either pile on or we can do this. Now, here's the technique. I'm going to give you a technique, and it's gold. This is golden. 
This will work. It's like a Glock 19. You pull this out, and somebody's dumping the garbage. You say this. Simply say this. And it's tactful, too. You know, this won't hurt anybody's feelings. Uh, Alfred, you, do you know what Steve did? No, what? He switched out the white cloud for Charmin. Can you believe that? You say, you say uh, really? What did he say when you talked to him about that? That's it. Mic drop right there. Boom. What did he say when you talked to him about that? Because chances are, you didn't, he didn't talk to them about that. They haven't talked to Steve about that. They haven't talked to Susie about that. They haven't talked to Bob about that. They haven't talked to Bill about that. They haven't taken that first step. What did you say? Oh, well, I, I haven't really talked to Steve about that. And then you follow up with, and this takes a little bit more courage. It sounds a little bit judgmental, but it's not. You say, well then, let me show you something here in the Bible. You get your Bible app out on your phone. You turn to Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Matthew 18, 15. Matthew 18, 15. Go right to Matthew 18, 15. Let me show you what Jesus said about how to handle interpersonal conflict. And just come right here. Say, go to them in person, in private. Right, do a little teaching. That's the Jesus way. They say, oh, yeah, I never saw that before. Will you go with me to talk to Steve? No, <laughs> I won't go with you to talk to Steve. That's the second step. The first step is in person, and not just in person, in private. In person, in private. So that's not in the church vestibule or the church welcome center. I can tell you, I've had this happen, and any person in ministry has, can, has had this happen. I didn't talk to the other staff people on the church about, on our church, staff about this before this message. I talked to one of them in between. Sure enough, they've all had it happen. Some of you elders have had this happen. That, you know, you just had a wonderful worship service. You got another one coming up. Got about 15 minutes in between services. You're shaking people out the door. And somebody comes through and says, Steve, I want to talk to you about something. Step over here. So we step over here. Now people are still, they're coming and going and they try to deal with the issue right there, right? Right there in the church vestibule or the welcome center. Optics are terrible. People are seeing what's going on over there, and it's not in private. It's in person, but it's not in private. So, pretty, pretty straightforward and simple stuff. We confront infrequently. We confront in person and private. And then thirdly, we confront in love. Confront in love. If they listen to you, this is New, New Living Translation, if they listen to you, you've won them over. New American Standard says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the whole purpose here is not, I'm going to get something off my chest, or I'm going to whip out a can of an Old Testament wrath on somebody. It's not that. It's for the reconciliation of the relationship, and maybe for their own spiritual welfare. If we're talking about a genuine sin, the relationship to God and maybe the church at large could be at stake here. So the, the motive or the purpose is love and the manner, the posture in, in a biblical confrontation is a loving posture. Galatians 6.1, Paul writes, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are spiritual should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Gentleness, it's humility, it's love. I think of uh, Samuel in the Old Testament, Samuel the prophet. And recall that God sent Samuel on a mission to anoint the first king of Israel. 
Who was he going to anoint? What was that man's name? First king, Saul. So Samuel goes to Saul, anoints him as the first king of Israel, and Samuel loved Saul. There's a real bond that's set up there. But it didn't take long, and after a few years, Saul rebelled against God, left the straight and narrow, and Samuel was sent back by God with another mission. Uh, you need to confront Saul, and here's your message. The kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you and given to someone else. And when Samuel heard what he had to do and go and make that confrontation, he was heartbroken. Heartbroken. Look at his reaction. 1 Samuel 15, 11. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. This broke his heart that he's going to have to confront. And then after the fact, 1534, Samuel mourned constantly for Saul. In 16.1, God finally came to Samuel and says, you have mourned long enough, Saul. I got some other, Samuel, I've got some other things for you to do. You've mourned long enough. This is the attitude. If we ever have to confront someone, you know, our heart is humble, is gentle, it's breaking because we're coming in a posture of love. And the, the goal is love. I mean, why would anybody do this? We're all conflict avoiders. Everybody's, almost everybody's a conflict avoider. If you think you have the gift of confrontation, there's probably something wrong. None of us likes conflict. And that's why, that's one of the reasons we hardly ever do this. We avoid this at almost all costs. Why would somebody even do this? Usually, only out of love. Only out of, because I love someone. You love me and our, our concern for them. There was a lady in the church a few years ago, a single mother, who at one point made a bad decision. She married an atheist. And predictably, after a few months, she stopped coming to church. Next thing you know, she's posted on Facebook, I'm not a Christian anymore, I'm an atheist. And she said, if you love me, that's what she put on Facebook, my Christian family and friends, if you love me, you will affirm me in my atheism and you won't challenge me. And her Christian family and friends could not do that. Not because they didn't love her, but because they, precisely because they did. It's love that's reaching out and trying to do what's best for another person. Again, back to the Old Testament. Do you remember when David's son, Absalom, rebelled against him? Led an armed rebellion against his own father. There was civil war in Israel. So David, David's army goes to war against Absalom's army. David's army prevails. And as the army is coming back into town, however, in, in the course of the battle, Absalom was killed. David's son, his rebel son, and David understandably was heartbroken over the death of his son. But as the army's coming back into town, David is weeping and wailing and he's mourning for his son. Oh, Absalom, Absalom. And his army coming back in, and they've suffered some casualties, heard this, and were totally demoralized by it. So Joab, David's general, goes to David and confronts him and says, David, these men laid their lives on the line for you. And all they see is you mourning Absalom. You're giving the impression you'd rather all your army be dead and Absalom be alive than the reverse. He said, David, you need to get out there, pull yourself together, and congratulate your army or you won't have an army tomorrow morning. That was hard for Joab to do and it was hard for David to hear. But he did it. He congratulated his army. And Joab, through that confrontation, saved David's 
kingdom. What was the motive? The motive there is love. The motive in a confrontation has always got to be love. I'm going to read you an excerpt here from a book called Ragamuffin Gospel. Love this book, Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning. Brennan Manning's written at least two great books that I've read. The other one is uh, Posers, Fakers, and Wannabes by Brennan Manning. He's passed away now, but uh, he was a teacher, author, and an alcoholic, and an alcoholic, recovering alcoholic. So this true story from Ragamuffin Gospel about a confrontation. This is a long quote. This is, this is like four pages, but you know, I can read pretty fast. But uh, it's worth it, and he says it in a way I don't think anybody else, I've never read it like this before, so I want you to hear it, so hang with me. He writes, one of my indelible memories goes back to April 75 when I was a patient at an alcoholic rehabilitation center in a small north town in Minneapolis. 25 chemically dependent men were assembled. Our leader was a trained counselor, skilled therapist, and senior member of the staff. His name was Sean Murphy O'Connor. Sean directed a patient named Max to sit in the hot seat in the center of the U-shaped group. Max was a nominal Christian, married with five children, owner and president of his company, wealthy, affable, and gifted with remarkable poise. He spent 30 minutes answering Sean's questions, equivocating on how much he drank and whether he was truly an alcoholic and even needed to be in the program. Finally, Sean asked, have you ever been unkind to one of your kids? Max responded, glad you brought that up, Sean. I have a fantastic rapport with my four boys. Last Thanksgiving, I took them fishing to the Rockies, four days roughing into the wilderness, a great time. Two of my sons graduated from Harvard. I didn't ask that. At least once in his life, every father has been unkind to his kids. Now give us one specific example. A long pause ensued. Finally, well, I was a little thoughtless with my nine-year-old daughter last Christmas Eve. What happened? I don't remember. I just get this heavy feeling whenever I think about it. Well, where did it happen? What were the circumstances? I told you I don't remember. I just can't shake this bad feeling. Unobtrusively, Murphy O'Connor dialed Max's hometown and spoke to his wife. Sean Murphy O'Connor calling, ma'am. We're in the middle of a group therapy session, and your husband just told us that he was unkind to your daughter last Christmas Eve. Can you give me the details, please? A soft voice filled the room. Yes, I can tell you the whole thing. It seems like it just happened yesterday. Our daughter, Debbie, wanted a pair of earth shoes for her Christmas present. On the afternoon of December 24th, my husband drove her downtown, gave her $60, and told her to buy the best pair of shoes in the store, and that's what she did. And when she climbed back into the pickup truck her father was driving, she kissed him on the cheek and told him he was the best daddy in the whole world. And Max decided to celebrate on the way home. He stopped at the Cork and Bottle. That's a tavern a few miles from our house. He told Debbie he would get, he'd be right out. It was a clear and extremely cold day, about 12 degrees above zero. So Max left the motor running and locked both doors from the outside so no one could get in. It was a little after three in the afternoon. Silence. The sound of heavy breathing crossed the room. Her voice grew faint. She was crying. My husband met some old army buddies in the tavern. Swept up in the euphoria over the reunion, he lost track of time, purpose, and everything else. He came out of the cork and bottle at midnight. He was drunk. The motor had stopped running. The car windows were frozen shut. Debbie was badly frostbitten on both ears and on her fingers. When we got her to the hospital, the doctors had to operate. They amputated the thumb and forefinger on her right hand, and she will be deaf for the rest of her life. Now, Max appeared to be having a coronary. He collapsed on all fours and sobbed hysterically. Murphy O'Connor said, Max, there's the door. Get out. I'm not running a rehab for liars. 
Now, Brennan Manning comes right back in at this point, and he writes this. The philosophy of tough love is based on the conviction that no effective recovery can be initiated until a man admits that he is powerless over alcohol, that his life has become unmanageable. The alternative to confronting the truth is always some form of self-destruction. For Max, there were three options, eventual insanity, premature death, or sobriety. Max's denial had to be identified through merciless interaction with his peers. His self-deception had to be unmasked. Later that same day, Max pleaded for and obtained permission to continue treatment. He proceeded to undergo the most striking personality change I've ever witnessed. He got honest. He became more open, sincere, vulnerable, and affectionate than any man in the group. Tough love had made him real, and the truth had set him free. The evil one is a great illusionist. He varnishes the truth and encourages dishonesty. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and refusing to admit the truth. Satan prompts us to give importance to what has no importance. He clothes trivia with glitter and seduces us away from what is real. He causes us to live in a world of delusion, unreality, and shadows. The really real is God. When Max confronted and accepted the truth of his alcoholism, he stepped through a doorway into the acknowledgement of God's sovereign reality. That's the end of the quote. Now, Steve, why would you read that? We're not a bunch of alcoholics. It's not an AA meeting. Well, I understand that. Uh, however, we are all sinners. Sin is addictive. Everybody has at least one besetting sin. We all have a great capacity for rationalization and self-deception. We all have the ability to walk in the darkness. And sometimes God uses His Word and His Word alone without any human intermediaries to confront us, right? The Word of God sharper than a two-edged sword and it'll cut. But oftentimes, God seems to use other people to help us and confront us with the truth and hold up the mirror of God's Word so we can make some kind of course adjustment in our lives and always out of love. You know, I've had that happen from time to time in my life, and you probably have too. In fact, some of the people in our own church family have, have come to me and said, Steve, there's something I need to talk to you about. And usually, most of the time, those are my most precious relationships, my family and my friends who love me and love me enough to be a game changer in my life. And Maybe God is calling us from time to time to step in and be a game changer in someone else's life out of love. Solomon writes in Proverbs 27, wounds from a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. You know, there's a couple more steps here. There's if that doesn't work, take two or three brothers with you and then take it to the whole church. I'm not going to spend any time on that. Uh, basically, if, it, if you can't resolve it one-on-one -on -one in person, grab an elder or two. They're well-schooled in, in conflict management and they're mature and wise. Just go back with an elder. And as far as taking it to the whole church, that almost never happens. In 40 years of ministry, I've never seen a situation where a, some issue had to be taken like that before the whole church. I asked a couple of other elders about this. You know, not all of them, but in our combined experience, over 100 years of experience in church ministry, and they had never seen that actually happen. So I'm not saying it's not important. It might be relevant at some point, but for most of us, that's not where the real relevance is. The real relevance is right here, in person, in private, in love. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you just don't overlook our sins. I mean, you forgive our sins, but you are willing to confront us with the truth so we can make course corrections, so we can repent and change and turn around and go back 
the correct way toward the abundant life to which you have called us. And God, when it comes to it, use us to do that in the lives of our friends and family, church brothers and sisters as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.